You're listening to Garibaldi Red, a Nottingham Forest podcast brought to you by Nottinghamshire Live. Hello and welcome to Garibaldi Red. My name is Matt Davis and I'm joined today by BT Sport and BBC Radio 5 Live's Darren Fletcher to talk about all things Forest and the Samantha Bursals Trophy. Fletcher, I ask this in all sincerity. How are you after yesterday? I'm in tremendous pain. Uh, yes. yes. The, the, the 30-second cameo came at a massive price. <clears throat> so I'd, I'd gone for a kickabout with my son, Luca, the other day, dragged me down the park. And I'd gone to kick a ball and, and pulled my groin. So when I went on yesterday, that's why I went on with five minutes to go. And the plan was that I wouldn't actually touch the ball. So the first thing I get when I get on there is the ball. So I tried to pass it. And whatever happened the other night, it's gone tenfold now. So it feels like I've got a balloon shoved down the front of my pants. I can't lift my right leg up. Um, I'm in massive trouble. But I wouldn't have swapped yesterday for the world. So a little bit of pain today and for the next few days is a minor um, a minor penalty, I suppose, for, for being asked to be involved in such a fantastic occasion and event yesterday. Yeah, I mean, you know, personal pain aside, yesterday was obviously a sad occasion with Gary's wife, Samantha, passing so close to the match after being so ill for so long. But the day itself, like, like Gaz said afterwards, was a great family day and a great success on all fronts, really, wasn't it? Tremendously humbling to, to be asked to, to be involved. Um, and, I, and I think the beauty of yesterday was it was a completely positive day. You know, I felt yesterday that, that we did Samantha's legacy proud. I think the Bertels family um, were able to be involved in a day that they will remember, I'm sure, forever. And I think we managed to turn the day into a celebration, which is is what it always should have been. And it did so much good for, for Treetops Hospice as well. Um, so many people um, gave their time freely, whether it was the committee at Baseford United, Steve Chettle, Chris Munro, Stan Mitchell, um, you know, all, all the people who worked on that. Lisa Fox worked tirelessly um, to, to get loads of auction items and raffle prizes and just go above and beyond. And then all the players who came yesterday, you know, past and present and gave up their time. And then, of course, the wonderful generosity of all the people there it wasn't just a case of people buying tickets to come and see the match. The people who couldn't get a ticket because they'd been sold out bought virtual tickets, which made a massive difference. And then the generosity when we got into the marquee last night and we did the auction blew me away. Um, and I, I, it almost it almost reconfirms your belief and trust in human nature when you can have a day like that um, that meant so much to everybody and for everybody um, and did so much good. So it was fantastic to be part of. I hope that we're able to do something again next year. I think that might be the the early plan. Um, and I hope everybody had a, a great day yesterday who came to watch. Uh, and I know it's not just me that's aching this morning. I think one or two people have put pictures of the Tin Man onto various social media platforms to try and explain just how they feel this morning. Very true, very true. Um, we'll talk some current forests in a bit. So if you've got any questions or comments, do drop them in for Fletch and we'll, we'll go through those. I think Gary was saying afterwards it's raised £50,000 or, or close to which is an astonishing achievement, isn't it? What started off as a small charity walk amongst friends has really snowballed. If you think that when this started, Gary decided he wanted to raise £500 for Treetop Hospice, and here we are 50 grand later. Uh, I mean, it's 
you know, it's, it blows you away, really, doesn't it? I mean, we, we did the auction last night, and in a you know relatively small room, we raised seven thousand pounds just to people's generosity within the room, um, and it, it, it was it was amazing, really, and to see the looks on the, the two the two the two ladies there from Treetops Hospice to see their face as, as their faces as, as the night went on, and realization was setting in that that this was going to do so much good for them, and I mean, it's exactly what Samantha would have wanted. And, and that's, that's the important thing. She would have taken so much from yesterday. And I know that Gary did as well. You know, Gary, it's been such a difficult week for him and he was absolutely shattered by the end of the day. And I think physical and emotional um, toll had, had, had just got the better of him. But I think to to see what yesterday stood for and to see the outpouring of love and generosity and all of that kind of thing yesterday was, was just... If you could have written a, a list of what you hoped it would be at the outset of the project, every box would have been ticked three or four times at least yesterday. You were in a dressing room with um, Martin O'Neill, Michael Dawson, Andy Reid, you know, some of the greats and the gurus, Nigel Clough of Nottingham Forest. You Obviously, you work at a high level in broadcasting. Do you ever get starstruck as a putting your Forest fan hat on or is that past now? I tell you what I felt yesterday. I felt completely out of place because you've got so many, you know, great names in there, wonderful footballers who have had fantastic careers, and there's me sat in the corner, you know, thinking, "What are you doing in here?" From my own personal perspective, it was so great to see so many people. You know, the Forest team that I covered when I was commentating on the radio here in in the city. A lot of those guys were there yesterday. You know, you mentioned Michael Dawson. I mean, that was towards the back end of my radio career here, but but Steve Chettle and Mark Crossley and Craig Armstrong and Paul McGregor, Steve Guinan, Des Walker. I mean, to be in the same changing room as Des Walker, I mean, come on. I mean, I've, I've been sitting on the television, in front of the television for the last few weeks, showing Luke and my boy, Italia 90 and all that. And I'm sat there saying, you know, Des Walker was the best centre-back in the world at that time. You know, and then you, you, I came on with five minutes to go for my 30 seconds. And Des Walker's at centre-back. Michael Dawson's next to him, and there's me at right-back. But it was great to catch up with Nigel Jensen, who I've not seen for a few weeks with, with the pandemic and all that kind of thing. So to just be around everybody and, and, and see them and, and be in that room with them was wonderful. And it was great because the minute everybody walked in the changing room, they just went back to when they were together. So it all started again, and whoever was the butt of the jokes back then was 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 the target again this week, and it was all all firing round, and it was it was just a wonderful insight in, into into what it's like to be in there with those guys, and and I think they all they all got so much out of being together again, which was which was wonderful. Yeah, I mean, you could see quite a few players could still play there, but at fifty five oh. years old, Des Walker actually stood out as much as anyone. I tell you what, Des looks like he could play now. He does. You know, he's a Premier League player. They are the same build that Des is now. I mean, he's a, he's a physical freak, Des. I mean, he's. I, I think Des could be ninety five and still be running around like that. Um, so, I mean, that was that was brilliant. I mean, Reedy looked like he could go and run a midfield again. I mean, he was he was he was fantastic. It, it was just it was just great to watch. I think it, it's it's maybe just whetted the appetite for Michael again, Michael Dawson. I think he's thinking, if I can just find a team where I can play in a back three and I can hit the diagonal and I've not got to be 1v1 too often, there's a bit more gas in the tank. So there was a, a, a few yesterday. And then, of course, you got poor old Gemmo, pulled the hamstring, taking the free kick. <laughs> the post. Uh, Gary Mills, I think he did his Achilles tendon after about a minute. 
Yeah. Uh, so that was that was not good to see. Steve Chettle's back was screaming from about four minutes in, and he had to play pretty much a whole half. So there was a lot of walking wounded that we ran out of ice. Uh, and that wasn't for the drinks. That was for various muscle pulls and different different issues. But yeah, I mean, I mean, Des. The thing with Des, he wasn't that sure about coming on, and he was trying to push it back and push it back. And he originally said, "I'll do the last twenty five minutes." And I said, "Well, you better get started then, because it's sixty three. So you've got to come on at sixty five. He went, "All right, I'll do the last 20. <laughs> he pushed it back a little bit, and he pushed it back a bit more. But the minute he came off the bench, off he went, and he was running around, and he was loving it. And I just wish he would have gone on a bit sooner. You know, I'd like to see a bit more of him. But it was it was so good to see him because he is. You know, when you think about great players that Forest have had, we automatically think about the miracle men, and we, we think about that wonderful team." But Des Walker is as good a central defender that the club has had or is likely to have. So to see him again in a, in a Forest shirt was special yesterday. Let's talk a bit of current Forest then. Um, I think the indications are that there's going to be a new CEO in place by you know, early July in, in Dane Murphy. I think that would be the, the understanding. Uh, Forest haven't signed anyone yet. I mean, how do you think it, it's shaping up? It's a very slow transfer market across football in general at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, and I think if you are going to bring in a CEO to work closely with Chris Uton, the manager, then you would automatically delay the majority, if not all, of your, your business in terms of who's coming in and, and maybe as significantly who still might be going out. I mean, they've, they've released some players, but... That was a necessity because they couldn't carry a squad of that size again into next season. You certainly would expect that that maybe more would leave. But, I mean, of course, everybody's worrying or wondering at the moment, worrying and wondering, I think, in equal measure because it's not happening yet. Who's going to be coming through the door? And I think we, when we spoke last time, that's the key. All I would say is I'd put the caveat in that it's OK bringing in a CEO and I know that Barnsley had a great season last season, fine. And, and I don't know a great deal about the gentleman who's coming in to, to fulfil that role. So what I would say is that it worries me when you look at a situation and say, ah, oh, there's a new CEO coming in. That's only going to go so far. And, and I really hope over the course of the summer that they will lean on Chris and his team more than any other group in the club in terms of recruitment. Because Chris has got a track record of bringing in players who can play in the championship, who can make a team better. My opinion is that the the most sensible option for the football club at the minute is to let Chris control that strand of the recruitment. Because I think you're increasing your chances of success if you do that. Yes, a CEO might... I can never remember anybody saying that team won the Champions League or the the Premier League or, or whatever it was because they've got a brilliant CEO. It's it's a very small part, in actual fact, of, of what they need. And I just think they've got to get the recruitment right this summer. And if I was them, I would be leaning on Chris Uton more than anybody else and saying to him, look, we've tried this for numerous summers and we've not got it right. We've not been great in the transfer market. We need your experience and let him guide it because I think you've got a better chance of of success if you've got a very experienced football man like him who's been in the situation before leading that part of the process than any CEO that you could bring in. And, and I'm not I'm not saying that the new guy is going to be a success or a failure because I don't know and I don't know enough about him. 
but I but I, I just know that you can get carried away by a person coming into a football club and think they're going to make a massive difference. He may, he may not, but there is a guy in there at the moment in the manager's office who they should be leaning on very strongly right now, regardless of who fills that position. When I spoke to Nigel Clough yesterday at the game, um, one of the things he said away from the, the charity side was about the need to be smart in the transfer market, not just at Mansfield where he works now, but he specifically said up to the championship in terms mm-hmm. of getting the right free transfers in, being smart in the loan market. And what you say there about Chris, I mean, he's the kind of manager you'd want, wouldn't you, who is a smart operator if you you know free the shackles and let him do what he wants? I mean, look, that's only my opinion. I might, I might be completely wrong on it, but that would be the way that I would go if, if, if I were them. That would allow you to be a bit more proactive at this stage than maybe they are being at the moment. If you hand this over to Chris, then it doesn't really matter when the administrator comes in because you've got the football man making those decisions. And I, I agree wholeheartedly with Nigel, and I would use Derby County as a, as a prime example, that the season Frank Lampard was the manager and they loaned in Harry Wilson and Mason Mount, they were 90 minutes away from the Premier League. When you took Mason Mount and Harry Wilson out of the mix at Derby, they were a significantly weaker team. You saw the impact that Garner had at Forest from January onwards last season. Forest were a better team by quite a margin with him in, a player that they could potentially get again. And I think if you can be the team that knows who the, the hot loans are for this year, it makes a massive difference because you're getting players that you can't afford, players that you wouldn't ordinarily have, players who are going to be playing Premier League football their club is hoping in a season's time and you get the chance to be the club that is the finishing school for them. So that makes you significantly better. If you go back through uh, promotions of the past, you know, the sides that get good loan players, the clever ones in terms of loaning those players in tend to be the ones that that have a successful season. So I think that's going to be vitally important for them. Um, this summer. But I also think they've got to get the big ones right as well. I said it when I was on before. If you're going to go and sign a striker, you've got to go and make sure you get the right one. Uh, It's not about sexy names. It's about a player that's going to get you 25 goals because that's what they were lacking last season. Whatever your attacking players look like, the ones that you're thinking about, I don't think they can be gambles. I think they've got to be tried and tested performers, players that you're pretty confident they're going to come in and do what they're supposed to do. And if you do that, then you've got a real chance to step forward because I think it's going to be relatively open this year. I think there's a chance always in this division for teams that are below halfway one season to go and be top six sides the next. And there's no reason if Forest do their business wisely why they can't be one of those teams this season. Uh, you mentioned sexy names. I don't know if this qualifies as a sexy name, but Forest have been linked with Philip Zinkenagel today yeah. uh, from Watford. This is a bit of a hospital pass for you because neither of us have seen much of him. But he, you know, he had a decent record at Watford, uh, joined in January from Norwegian football where he was on fire. I mean, it's tough to say, isn't it? You talk about a gamble. Does that the kind of name that interests you, or is that a bit too much of a gamble still? I commentated on his debut. Actually, it was an FA Cup tie, Old Trafford. He played for Watford. And look, there were one or two nice moments, but I think you gave me some numbers before we started. Was it five assists in 20 games? Yeah. For for an attacking player that is part of a a Premier League squad as it stands. And that's in the Championship. Now, it'd have to be better than that, wouldn't it? Because if you're bringing a a player in on loan and you're going to get your 
10 assists over the course of the season from a Premier League side, you'd probably want a little bit more than that. So I don't know enough about him. I know that it's a big step up from Norwegian football to what he came into last year. But again, you know, if it's Chris Uton identifying and saying, look, this is the player that we need, I'd have a lot more confidence in it. So we don't know who's calling the shots, whether it's Chris's decision, whether it's somebody else's decision, I don't know. But I just hoped this summer that we would get to August and we kind of look at the forest front line and go, we know what we're going to get there. If all things fall into place here, we know there's enough on the pitch now to get this team moving forward, scoring goals and being a real threat. I think they're fine at the other end. I think defensively, goalkeeper, fine. Midfield could be better. But I think if you get Garner back in there, back in there with Yates and one or two others, then, you, then you're OK. It's that front line that's going to decide it. Who's going to be your centre forward? Are you going to play with three up top? If so, can those wide players get some goals as well? Five assists in 20 games, I don't think is enough. He could be better in the Forest system. I don't know. But I, you just kind of look at it and think, they've got to get that right. That area of the pitch will decide whether this coming season is going to be success or failure. And all the concentration, I think, should be on that end of the field. And if they get that right, they can move forward. If they don't, they're going to struggle again because it's very difficult in the championship to win games 1-0 week after week after week after week. Under Sabri Lamouche, they're one of the best teams at doing that that I've seen in the last decade in the championship. And it still wasn't enough to get them into the playoffs. So you need a little bit more than 1-0 wins. That can carry you so, so far. Forest need a goal threat. They've got to be able to win shootouts. You do concede goals in the championship. You can't help it. So you've got to have the firepower at the other end to make sure you can stay in the matches. One of the big talking points in terms of outgoings that's kind of hanging over everyone is Joe Worrell's potential departure. This is more of a gut instinct question, but do you expect him to be at the club at the start of next season? I think it's an interesting one. And I think what you've got to remember with Joe Worrell is that Nottingham Forest means everything to him. You know, he came through the academy, joined the club when he was 13. Nottingham Forest to him is everything. But Forest have this situation with financial fair play where we tend to see a player sold for a significant sum of money each summer to make sure that they stay in line with, you know, the various restrictions that you are placed under as a championship club. I think Joe Worrell would be interested, of course, to test himself in the Premier League because that's where everybody wants to go. But I don't think there's going to be a desire from Joe Worrell to force his way out of Forest. Whether it's a financial thing, I don't know. Whether there's a valuation that they say, look, if we get to this point, we'll sell. And I think Collins at Stoke is probably a decent ballpark for that. I think it's difficult for a club like Forest if somebody comes in and says, look, we'll give you 15 million quid for one of your players. It's a difficult, um, it's a difficult fee to turn down at that stage, isn't it? Because of what I've said before. Gut instinct. I think if they get the right bid, I think they would seriously consider selling Joe Worrell. But I, I don't think it's necessarily anything that anybody wants to do. I don't think there'd be a great willingness inside the boardroom to do that. I don't think there's a massive willingness from Joe Worrell to do that. But it just might be one of those situations where financially it works out for everybody and the deal gets done. If they do do that, though, you would hope that all of that money is then given to Chris to go and get himself some attacking players to solve the problem at the other end. So it's not just a case of selling Joe Worrell, because if you sell Joe Worrell, you make your team weaker. 
But if you're going to sell Joe Worrell to make the rest of the team better, then it makes a little bit of sense, doesn't it? Yeah, certainly, certainly. And there's a debate that we had on the video we did last week with Sarah Clapson. Um, if you were to, this is a notional thing, if you were to get the same bid for Worrell, Mighton and Johnson and you had to sell one of them, which would you be tempted to sell? Because you talk about the attacking problems. Which of those players is kind of the most expendable at Forest? Yeah, I, I would. If it, if it was down to me, then Joe Worrell would be the player from that group I'd sell because agree, yeah. we, we don't know at this stage what Brennan Johnson will be as a Championship player and hopefully higher. We've had a little bit of a glimpse of what Alex Mighton can do, and there's been some very encouraging performances from him. Very very talented players. Now, if Brennan Johnson can replicate or get anywhere near to what he did last season alone at Lincoln, then he's going to be starting games for Forrest on a weekly basis. Alex Mighton as well. It's difficult to get those kind of players to come through your academy and play first-team football. And I think you've got the potential there for their values to become so much higher. They also fill a massive area of need for Forrest next season. They can score goals. They can make goals. They're the kind of players that are going to get the crowd off their seat, onto their feet, the kind of players that supporters love to watch. They're the kind of players that you feel they could build a promotion campaign around if everything goes well. And if that's not this season coming up, certainly the season after, when they've got a bit more experience at that level. I think it's easier to replace a centre-back at championship level than it is outstanding attacking prospects, which is what those two players are. So I, I think I think Joe... Joe would be the one from the three. But in an ideal world, as a Forest fan, you'd like all three to play and, and you'd like a situation where in 18 months' time, we've got a Nottingham Forest first team that includes Joe Worrell, Brennan Johnson, Alex Mighton, maybe one or two others as well. And we're starting to see the academy then becoming the first team. And if they can get back to that at any stage, then they're in a brilliant position because I know that you know the club's just gone to a Category 1 academy, so everything is geared now to... So that being a really successful production line for them, the coaching is going to get better, players are going to get better. That should really become a fertile breeding ground for young players in the future. I'd like to see all of them stay. I'm not in there balancing the books, but I think if you were to say to me, which one would it be if you got to sell one of the three? I think Joe Worrell would be the one because you you would hope that the other two could be very significant um, players for Forest as, 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 as attacking players moving forward. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I made the, the same argument last week uh, along exactly the same line, so that's good. Um, let's look at next season just in general in the league. Um, do you think it's kind of more unbalanced than ever now, the Championship, because of parachute payments? Uh, they, to me, they give uh, just a small number of teams such a huge advantage. Is, is that just a bit unfair in general? Yeah, I, th- I think they need to look at it because whenever you sit down at the start of the season, you think, well, something's got to go hugely wrong for the relegated clubs for them not to at least be in the top six so you're kind of reducing the rest of the field down to three teams that can be involved at the end of it the Premier League squads are so big now and there's so much money by being a Premier League club that when you drop down you don't have to sell everybody anymore you know you can kind of keep enough enough to keep you there imbalances it to a large extent because three sides are automatically stronger than the rest And then because of the the restrictions you have with financial fair play, teams within that division that do have money to spend, who'd like to go and join the relegated sides in terms of having a squad of of similar depth and strength, they're not allowed to because 
they're not bringing in enough revenue to get around that. So I think it is imbalanced. I think it's a lot easier now to get relegated and come back again. I remember, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, you'd get relegated from the Premier League and you'd say, well, it's going to be a rocky few weeks for them at the start of the season because it takes a bit of settling into. And you often saw teams get relegated, start slowly, and then try and come and, and catch um, the leading teams towards the end of the season. But now, you know, you'd fully expect Fulham to be in the top six at least next season. I, I, I can't see for a minute that they wouldn't be. Can you? Um, you know, the other ones that came down, it's hard to stick a line through them and go, well, they'll be no good. I, 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 it's just more and more difficult. And I think you'll probably get a bit of a bounce again from Bournemouth, who... You know, they've still got parachute money coming in. They're going to have Scott Parker as the manager, it would appear. They were better when Jonathan Woodgate came in, so they're probably better than last season um, looked like for them. But I do, I think it's, it's getting more and more difficult season upon season to get past the three that were relegated the season before. Norwich are a prime example. One of the worst teams I've seen in the Premier League, by the way, and then they flew through the division again last season unbelievably easily, didn't they? And why would the teams coming down again this year not be able to do that? So it is harder. It's it's difficult for the teams that are long-term champions, uh, champions, championship clubs to get into that mix at any stage of the season because they're so strong, the teams that get relegated. Do you think FFP is going to at least be amended, if not go? I mean, there's teams like Stokes owners are absolutely loaded. They must be fuming. I mean... Yeah, but I think the same. I think the same applies at the city ground. You know, I think I think I think the, the forest owner would like to be able to spend more money than he does. You know, I think they've been quite creative in terms of how they try and move players around to get around it to a certain extent. You know, I think Forest are one of the clubs that, if they did amend financial fair play, would suddenly become stronger because they've got an owner that could have a real go to get them into the Premier League. And I think if you've got the situation with the parachute payments and the three clubs coming down are so much stronger. It's not fair play, is it? Because it's it's a slightly it's a slightly stilted system because you've got three clubs that are stronger than everybody else because of the division they've just come down from and the fact they're getting parachute payments. So it probably does need looking at, yeah, because it's gone from being the most competitive division in the whole of the Football League, and you can include the Premier League in that, despite it's an FA League, the most competitive league is becoming a little bit more predictable or a lot more predictable. And that that's not good. Let's finish up just talking a bit of England. I think you're wearing an England drill top there, Fletch, by the look of it. So you... I am, actually. Yeah, I've got it on, yeah. Yes, I'm staying loyal to the three Lions. <laughs> yes, well, uh, what's your prediction then for tomorrow against the Germans? How's it going to go? I think, I, look, I, I, I fancy England to win the game tomorrow. And I think after, after seeing the Dutch go out last night, they'll never have a better chance if they can get through tomorrow. And that's the caveat to get to a major final. Because if you said, look, after this, you, you've got to play that group of teams they've got coming up, you'd say, well, and you've got to do it at home in the main, you know, provided they could get through the game in Rome. But I do like them tomorrow. I wasn't that convinced about Germany coming in. You know, they lost to North Macedonia in a World Cup qualifier. You know, they, they were beaten by France. And I don't think France have hit the heights quite just yet in their opening match. They were taken all the way, weren't they, in the final group game by Hungary yeah. and that game was played in Munich you know I, I just look at this German team and I think they're not great at the back you know Rudiger aside who had a really good run in the Champions League with Chelsea this season you know Hummels was back in but pace has never been a strong point so I think you can get in behind them I look at the top end of the pitch who's going to score the goals Havertz is having a nice championship but 
there's not really that dominant striker for them that we tend to see from from German teams. I just hope the England players go into the game without an inferiority complex, believe they can get it done. I expect Gareth Southgate to, to set up quite defensively. I think he'll play with the back four. I think he'll play with three in midfield. And if he can, I think one of those will be Mason Mount, along with Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips. Fully expect Phil Foden to come back in and start. Sterling on the other side, Harry Kane through the middle. Stones and Maguire as, as, as the centre-backs. Walker at right-back. I think his decision is going to be at left-back, whether he sticks with Luke Shaw or maybe goes for the experience of Trippier, as he did on the, on the opening day of the group against Croatia. But I think apart from that 4-3-3, they'll try and be solid. They'll try and nick a goal on the break. I think that's the way he's going to go. And he'll look at his bench and he'll think, look, if we get into the last 20 minutes and I can send on Jaden Sancho, Jack Grealish, Bukayo Saka, Marcus Rashford, you know, we've got a whole host of people here that in the last 20, 20 minutes, 15 minutes of, of the last 16 game can go and win as the match. I think that puts England in a, in a brilliant position. Um, I know that the general consensus is, look, and, 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 I, and I'm with people on this, the strength of the England team is is the front players. We've got the best selection of front players in the whole tournament. And don't throw Mbappe, Benzema and Griezmann at me because after that, have a look what happens after that. England have got seven or eight that can play in that position. Yes, the starting three for France might be better, but they're then sending on Olivier Giroud. You know, we're sending on. He, he, he can look back and think, oh, he's like juggling balls on the bench. I've got three or four, four or five, all sat behind me who can come and have an impact on the match. So... We're very deep there. Yes, I'd like to, and I said this on Five Live, why can't we just go into the tournament, play with five attackers, have a go, win 4-3, lose 4-3. We'll all forgive him for that. Now we're actually in the tournament. Let's be nice and tight against the Germans. Let's not make mistakes. Let's keep it tight. Let's nick a goal on the break. Let's make sure we don't concede a goal. And I think you'll do that tomorrow night, and I think we'll be okay. I think being at Wembley, 40,000, partisan, all English crowd, essentially, I think we'll be good. It's the, it's the most confident I've ever been going into a game against the Germans in a, a major tournament. And I, I, I really am starting to think that this, this is going to be our year. Whether we win it, I don't know, but I certainly think we'll be in the final. I think we'll get there. And then, look, all bets are off, aren't they, when you get to that stage? All bets are off. Who handles it on the night? I think they'll win tomorrow. I think they'll get through. I think we'll get to the final. What I do think as well, I think we'll wake up on Wednesday morning. And I don't think the tournament's quite got everybody just yet from an England standpoint. I think we're all enjoying it. But I don't think we're quite at Euro 96 levels yet. But I think beat the Germans tomorrow. And I think the country will go mad from Wednesday. And everybody will then start saying, this is it. This is it. We're going to do it. We're going to be there. We'll be the final. We could win it. 1966, all that. I think we'll all be going berserk by Wednesday morning. I hope so, because I'll be I'll be devastated like everybody else if we're not. So I've got my fingers crossed. I believe in Southgate. Believe in the players. We've got enough. Don't have an inferiority complex. Get out there. Beat the Germans. Let's get rolling. I, 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 think, I think we're going to do it. So your team Southgate, are you? I can't decide which... Side well... I'm Team Southgate now because he's the manager now. We're not changing now. <laughs> I'm Team Southgate now. Whether Team yeah. Southgate moving forward is the right thing, I don't know. Because I, yeah. I I just wonder, and I, I just said there, you know, we've got the strength of this England squad is the attacking players. And, and I think England need a coach with the imagination to use them. You know, I look at it and think, if, if, you, were, if you said to Pep Guardiola, 
or Jurgen Klopp, right, look, you've got all these players. They'd be sat away in a darkened room for four or five days with pads and you know notebooks and screens, and they'd be thinking, oh, I could do that with him and that with him, and he could go there and he could go there. And you 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 you'd come out for this wonderful cocktail of attacking football, and you'd be thinking, Wow, I'm not sure Gareth's got that in him. I think Gareth, you know, is a defender. I think he, he wants to be nice and solid. I get that. But I just think we've got an opportunity at the minute to have the most exciting, entertaining England team that we've ever seen. So I'd like to see someone with the imagination to be able to use all of those people. One thing that really disappointed me, just slightly got off the beaten track, the night they played Scotland and he took Harry Kane off mm. and then you replace him with Dominic Calvert-Lewin. That tells me a lot that we're going to stick to what we are. We're not going to change. I thought to myself, 20 minutes to go, if you're going to take Harry Kane off, why not have a look at England with a false nine? Mm. You've got Foden, you've got Sterling, who both play it for their club. Why don't you just see? Because you're up against a not very good team. You're playing the Scots, bang average. You you could have had a look that night and thought, what if what, what if we did this? So we still don't know really whether that system would work at international level. And you're certainly not going to try it against the Germans, are you, tomorrow? But I just look at that and think, if it's good enough for Manchester City, and if it's good enough for Chelsea, you know, the two teams that played in the Champions League final, it must be a pretty decent system. And you've got Mason Mount, you've got Raheem Sterling, you've got Phil Foden, you've got players who could do it. If you're going to take Kane off, and I'm not one of these people saying you should drop Harry Kane because he's as likely to score the goals tomorrow night to see us through than anybody. But if you are going to take him off, don't just go like for like and then smash it into Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Let's have a look at something. Can we be a bit different? You know, you look at some of the other managers in the tournament, what would they do with this group? Because Sterling's quite happy playing as a false knight. Foden's quite happy playing as a false knight. But we don't try it. And that's what bothers As an England fan, I want us to win and I want us to entertain. And if we are going to lose, I want to see us lose having a go. I don't want to see us lose 1-0 because we didn't want to attack and we've got all these attacking players. If we're going to lose, have a go. And I think England fans would forgive a manager if he did that. Because all the, the tournaments we look back on and we enjoy, we had a go. We had a go at Euro 96. You know, we had a go at Italia 90, if you can remember back that far. We had a go. You know, We got to the World Cup semi-final last time on getting penalties from corners because the centre-backs were getting dragged down. Yeah. Have a go. Go on, have a go. And I would have loved to have seen us just try it. Just see what it looks like. Be a bit creative. You know, Just, just sit down and say, let's do something a bit different. And I think we'd all enjoy it as a... As a group, if you look at an England team and you think, wow, we've got Grealish on the pitch, we've got Foden on the pitch, we've got Sancho on the pitch, we've got Sterling on the pitch. You know, we've got all these players on the pitch. I think I think everybody would love it. And I think we'd forgive him then if we if if, if we lost. I think if we go in there tomorrow and get defensive and lose one nil, everybody's gonna be going, Oh no, here we go again. So I think give it a go. Mm, no, I agree. It'll be a real miserable tournament if they go out with a whimper. If they go through yeah, it's you and all over again. It, it, it is, Matt, because you, if you went out with a whimper, but you've not got any attacking players, I get it. If you go out with a whimper with that group, you must sit back and think, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? Jaden Sancho's played four minutes. I know. I actually tweeted the other night. I said, well, was he in the tunnel as well with Billy Gilmore the other night? Because he can't <laughs> get on. Where, where's he gone? And then, oh, there he appears for the last five minutes. And you think, that, that, you know, journalists in Germany and players in Germany are tweeting, this England team must be really good if he can't get in it. Because mm. they see him week after week in the Bundesliga for Dortmund. Um, 
So, you know, he's a player for me at the moment. I can't really understand why he's not getting more of a chance, especially when Marcus Rashford's considering shoulder surgery after the tournament and his form completely dropped off in the last, I don't know, six or seven weeks of the season. He looks tired. He looks way off 100%. Doesn't look like the, the, the pre-Christmas Marcus Rashford, yet he seems to be the first player that he sends on whenever he makes a change. And you kind of sit there and think, it's just a little bit too rigid. Well, you know, I think in an ideal world, he wants Rashford in the team, doesn't he? So he can be first sub. So I don't quite feel as bad. But just get the get the player on that's going to be impactful at that time. And I think if he, if he picks his team tomorrow and Saka's not in it, and Foden is, I think that's going to be a big blow to that young man because I thought he was outstanding and did things in the game against the Czech Republic that no other player in that position in the tournament yet, has done for England. Got the ball at his feet, ran at defenders, excited people, tried to make things happen. You can see players play their way out of games and and teams in tournaments like this. I thought he probably played his way in the other night, but it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. Um, But I think he can consider himself um, hard done by if he's not in the team. I don't think he will be because I think he'll bring Foden back in. But I think, again, you've got a player there who has shown exactly what he can do. Um, and I think it's going to be harsh on him if he doesn't start. But I, look, get through tomorrow. Let's not worry too much. But after this tournament, let's let's have a look if we can be a bit more creative. Let, let's have something to really enjoy. One nil is not good enough. Come on. Uh, last thing, and it's got a one-word answer. Um, I'm going to trouble you for a prediction for which team's going to win the tournament. Uh, I'm going to stick my neck out and say England. I'm going to say Denmark. Oh yeah, wow! I think they. You know what? Uh, yeah. All I'd say is though, you know, the reason why I'm I'm picking England is that I look at England's half, and I, I'm pretty confident if we get through tomorrow that we'll get to the final. I look at the other half, mm. and it's easy to go. Oh, France is the best team. Yeah, but they've got to play Belgium, maybe, or they've got to play Italy at some stage. There's no guarantee they're going to be there because that's a really difficult half. I, I kind of want to take a team that I think is actually going to be there to have a chance to win it. So I think provided we get through tomorrow, we get there. The other half, carnage, isn't it? Absolute carnage. Anything could happen there. So I'm going to go England. You're an unpatriotic so-and-so picking the day. <laughs> and we'll stick at that. I'm a romantic. Right. <laughs> um, we'll leave it there. The second part of this podcast, we'll put this out as a podcast, is an interview I did with John McGovern yesterday where he does a Gareth Bale on me, Fletch. He walks off at the end like a mic. Yeah, not in an angry way. What did you ask him? Uh, I asked him about modern football and he gets really angry and calls it, I can't swear on this, he he half swears um, and then says thank you very much and walks off and signs some autographs. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose we speak on a sad occasion given Samantha's passing, but a kind of a celebration of a life with so many people coming together today? Yeah, I think it's a sign of respect that so many people have turned up today. Um, I'm delighted the weather's held out, so perhaps a few more have come than would have if it had been raining. But no, it's a, it's obviously a tribute and it's it's to help money, obviously, for you know the charity. So mm. it's a very good cause and obviously it shows that Gary's got a lot of friends, you know, even though he's lost his partner, you know, he's still got a lot of friends mm. that can, you know, perhaps console him for a while. You know? How often do you guys get together now in any kind of circumstances? Is it quite rare that you see? It is rare now because, you know, you're talking about the success we had on the football field is over 40 years ago. Yeah. Know? So 
so it's a long, long time. And uh, obviously, with the COVID situation, you can't get together in groups anyway. So, um, but we don't meet as regularly as we used to. But you always look forward to those times, and even the time before the match started. You know, talking to the likes of Martin, who I haven't seen for ages, and yeah. Martin O'Neill, and you know, even even seeing a lot of Kevin Keegan again, who said you're the only team that beat us when he was playing for Hamburg by not having a shot at goal you know I said to him no we had one (laughs) and he said oh yeah 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 one (laughs) so so at least he admitted we had one shot at goal of course a great goal from John Robertson you know does that bond always exist between you though no matter how far apart you are it's always you're always kind of united in a sense well it is because you know football's an emotional game you know the highest emotions you get if you have uh, any form of success and you know we had a Kind of you know three years of almost unbelievable success at the club you know where you follow league championship by two European cups and you throw in two league cups so you know phenomenal time in, of success at Nottingham Forest Football Club and you know you always remember those times and, and uh, you remember your emotions and your energy being at its highest in those days. Do you ever find yourself kind of pinching yourself about what you achieved you know growing up as a kid I bet you could never imagine what you'd happened could you it's only when people remind you of it that you, you kind of think well what a fantastic time that was but to be fair we were victims of our own success in some ways because it, it went on as I said for a period of you know over three years you know going from promotion and then you know making yourselves champions of Europe you know so you know four years of unparalleled success is, is quite a long time in football because there are so many competitors you know willing to knock you off the top spot and uh, I was just sad that it that it kind of disintegrated very very quickly when mm. Peter Taylor and Brian Clough were obviously having their problems as co-managers and co-friends When you started out at Hartlepool's United as it was then I mean, what were you hoping to achieve as a young man? I was just delighted to be playing football and uh, that's all I wanted to do so I was a late starter actually at football because I didn't play for any football team whatsoever till I was 15 years of age. All oh, right. So I didn't play at junior school. I uh, never had a football team there. I went to grammar school where I captained the rugby team and captained the cricket team for three years and uh, wanted to be a tennis player. But then eventually took up the game of football and when I was 15 I joined a local team uh, called Central Park and... Uh, from then I got a trial at Hartlepool when Brian Clough became the manager and obviously did enough to impress him and Peter Taylor for him to give me a chance of playing league football at the age of 16 and I played a dozen games when I was 16 after one year of actually playing football so I mean I look back on it now and I suppose it's quite phenomenal really for someone to to have so much inexperience but I had a manager and an assistant Peter Taylor I should say um, who you know taught, taught me the basics of the game so keen you know I, I wanted to listen and I wanted to learn and I wanted to put it into practice out there on the football field so I thought that I was about probably 27 before I really understood everything that you need to know about how to play the game of football but you know it was great the growing up process at Hartlepool because even after Brian Clough left I became part of the team that won promotion for the first time in the club's history so you know I was delighted with that and other things I was delighted with was when I played at Nottingham Forest and we actually won promotion in the first division I played two thirds of the season at centre half alongside Larry Lloyd which a lot of supporters would quite easily forget <laughs> yeah 
especially when they look at the size of me because I'm looking up at you now and you're, and you're thinking <laughs> and you're thinking centre half are you joking you know everybody said that you know are you joking but I found out how easy it was because I had to take up squash to, to get some extra fitness in because when you're a central defender you don't do a third of the running that you do as a, a midfield player I must ask you about the manager then I mean when you're a 16 year old kid at Hartlepool I guess you don't realise that Brian Clough's kind of a different manager and a special manager do you? Well it was his first job so you know and it was my well both our first jobs really and he, of course he frightened me to death the first time I met him but I realised through the the mists of time that passed that you know that was a test for him to give you a rollicking face to face how could you handle it mm. Mm. and obviously he saw the way that I tried to handle it was go out there and show him exactly how good I was as a player mm. and uh, he obviously saw that in me as a player he knew that temperament's okay because I can give him an absolute rollicking and he doesn't crack up and go out there and is un- unable to perform because of any kind of nerves I'm sure you've been asked this before but would you have had the career you had without being so intricately linked with, with Clough and Taylor do you think Probably not, mm. in all honesty. Uh, but that I'll never know because, you know, he'd left Hartlepool and I was part of the team that, as I said, won promotion uh, mm. while he wasn't there. So I might have made a footballer, but obviously I wouldn't have had the, the success unless I'd followed him, you know, first of all to Derby where we won the, you know, the second division and first division championships and then obviously again the success. Mm. So I'm one of the lucky ones, you know. I, I, Played for Hartlepool, we won promotion. You know, played for Derby, we won this one. That played for us, won this one. That, and then uh, was taught that things are never ever hunky dory because I went to Leeds United. Yes, and uh, I'd players selling me balls that an amateur wouldn't sell you. You know, and I, I suffered the consequences of being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, so every time I go back to Ellen Road now, I'm a European Cup winner's time. <laughs> one thing I've wondered about you is you were the captain and you were kind of were you the link between the dressing room and the manager and did that kind of create a bit of a distance between you and the other players or not no any any of the players that I played with could have captained the side mm. um, but Clough had known me I suppose longer than any of the other players so he, he understood me perhaps a little bit more than the other players and knew that you know, supposing we're 1-0 up or we're 3-0 down, I'll be doing exactly the right things out there on the football field to try and improve that result. Mm. So uh, there was no kind of... I didn't go to him and say, you know, oh, the lads want to try this boss or the lads want to try that boss, you know, because he told you what he wanted and you had to do it. Mm. And as, as a player, same as the other players, if he asked me to do something out there on the football field, I tried very hard to make sure it was done. At what point did you realise that Forest was something special when you were there with that group of players? Well, obviously it was uh, the season that surprised everyone. Where after winning promotion, yeah. where we scraped up third, mm. courtesy of an own goal, I think, by a Millwall fullback who headed into his own net to let us beat them one nil last game of the season to help us win promotion. Mm. So no one was expecting things to go uh, so well the following season, where you you know you absolutely take it by storm. But when you think about it, you know, we signed three players. We signed Peter Shilton, Kenny Burns and Archie Gemmer. Mm. Wow. <laughs> That's not, not bad if you go into the transfer market. You know, so now, so now when clubs sign, you know, seven or eight or nine or ten players, why don't they just sign three good ones like we did? Yeah. Because it worked for us. But when you think about it, if you've got a side that's already won promotion, maybe you don't have to do too much mm. to improve on them. But if you buy probably... 
or undisputably the, the best goalkeeper in the country and you buy Kenny Burns and he, he goes from running around as a centre forward scoring 20 goals and then finding how easy it is to play at centre half and you won't like me for saying this um, and you sign Archie Gemmell who can run for you all day non-stop and provide openings that other players couldn't because they'd have stopped running 15 minutes ago then that's the astuteness and the ability of the managers to know exactly what is needed to put a successful side together what kind of dressing room was that at the time was it a good blend of characters that were all quite different of course mm. I mean you have a great blend of characters mm. uh, and, and the, the players you know would go out there and die for each other mm. because that's what you have to do we might not go out with each other socially all of us yeah. but you know Clough Ludy usually made sure that you were all together as a team when you went out and maybe had a drink mm. you're all there because we are a team so this is how we do it um, so things were discipline wise were absolutely perfect I mean I, when I was a kid if I stepped out of line my mum clipped me behind the ear and it hurt you know what I mean so you do you, you want that pain all the time or don't you just do as you're told you know and if, if you do as you're told and it's successful you want to repeat that lesson and that's exactly what Clough did mm. you know he teaches this teaches that the players have got their own ability to come into it but you know they're very talented players mm. and if you play with other talented players obviously it make it slightly easy for you, for you, easier for yourself not easy easier for yourself mm. so, so that was it you've got a formula where the, the guy knows what he's doing mm. um, he wants to prove he's the best as he told everybody that he was and for two, three, four, five he was yeah. so, so you know he's proved it but he's convinced the players you know you can be as well do you think you get the respect you deserve as a group of players now or not? We'll never get the respect of teams like Liverpool or you know, Manchester United because you know they're big city clubs. Mm. Uh, Manchester United get 75,000 for every home game, you know what I mean? <laughs> Nottingham Forest, the ground holds 28,000, you know, so, mm. so you know, we, we can't compete in a sense with those clubs. Um, but at the time... Clough and Taylor proved that yes you can mm, mm. the ingredients of the recipe are right do you think teams today overcomplicate the game then well you know when I see, I see a right back passing into a centre half who passes it to another centre half who passes it to a left back and then yeah. the left back looks forward and then turns and gives it back to the centre half who passed him the ball 10 seconds earlier and he gives it to the other centre half who gives it to the right back again and then they pass it back to the centre half again who decides well there's nothing really on up there and he gives it back to the goalkeeper and what does he do he kicks it up in the air 40 yards to a centre forward who's got three defenders marking him mm. now I am not a brilliant genius academic or football wise but if I did that the manager would take me off the field of play mm. for not trying to take the responsibility of trying to create something mm. and if the ones on television that tell me this is good possession football they've got another thing coming because it is absolute bullshit and it's about time to stop kidding the public mm. and if they get any worse the actors that go down and pretend to be injured influencing kids at school supporters referees it's about time they grew up mm. and acted like men because it's supposed to be a man's game do you enjoy the game today then or not no because of those reasons thank you very much thank you John Right, thanks everyone who watched along. Uh, Fletch, thanks for joining us as ever. I do appreciate it, especially as you're injured. So it's very good of you. Thank you. My pleasure. My, it's my groin. It's not my mouth. <laughs> true, true. But still good of you. Um, we'll be back next week. There's one in the can I've recorded with Lee Wood, who you all know well, Fletch, who's a big Forest fan. So we'll get that out at some point. He's got 
Touchwood, he was hinting he's got a big fight coming up. So that'll be interesting and we'll put that out soon. Uh, thanks very much, everyone, and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to Garibaldi Red, a Nottingham Forest podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please let us know. We love hearing your feedback. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you.